to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. Today we're taking you through the best bits of the drama of the gifted child by Alice Miller, The Search for the True Self. History demonstrates that illusions sneak in everywhere, that life is full of them, perhaps because the truth often seems so unbearable to us. Yeah, the truth in the background, it's so essential. It's loss in the background. It's extracting a heavy toll in our lives in the form of a grave illness And in order to become whole, we must try in a long process to discover our own personal truth. And this might cause a lot of pain, but it will give you a new sphere of freedom. If we choose instead to content ourselves with intellectual wisdom rather than a true emotional understanding, we're going to remain in a sphere of illusion and self-deception. We're going to remain trapped in a world of adolescence, never actually progressing to the realm of adulthood. So, in this episode, we're talking a lot about the damage that's done during our childhood and a lot of that damage early days, it can't be undone, but because we can't change anything in the past, but we can, however, change ourselves and we can repair ourselves and gain our lost integrity by choosing to look more closely at what is delving deep in our unconscious. Most people do the wrong thing without realizing that the past is constantly determining their present actions. They avoid learning anything about their history. And they continue to live in their repressed childhood situation, ignoring the fact that they're no longer living in the childhood. Um, And they're continuing to fear and avoid dangers that probably back back in the day were real, but they haven't been real for a long time. They're just living out a fantasy world. Now, this book, The Drama of the Gift of the Child, it can be a... I think a quite powerful read for some people. I think we've both come across a lot of people where this is the most influential book in their lives. It might um, touch a few heartstrings for a lot of people reading and be somewhat transformational. So the path as you read or hear this, it might not be easy, but it's really the only route to just face what's happened in the past and we can at least leave behind the cruel invisible prison that we had in our childhood And we can continue to transform ourselves as the unaware victims of the past into responsible individuals in the present who are aware of our past and are able to live with it. Most of us have this general belief that our childhood was all happy and protected. But when Alice takes people through therapy, a lot of the time, as you peel back the onion, a totally different image of their childhood becomes apparent. At the beginning of a child's life, They have a primary need to be regarded and respected as a person they really are at any given time. And when we say, you know, who they really are at any given time, we're talking about the emotions, the sensations, and all their expression from the first day onwards. So, there's really two pathways from day dot as a child answering the earth. The first scenario is individuation and autonomy. So, this is where the child is respected as they are at the given time. They're in an atmosphere of respect and tolerance for their own feelings and they're in an environment where they can accomplish the steps towards this individuation and autonomy. And this can only happen if the parents themselves had grown up in this atmosphere. Yeah, if the parent had grown up in an atmosphere like that, they're going to be able to provide an atmosphere like that for their, for their child. And this is going to assure that the child has the protection, the respect, the tolerance that they need in order to develop trust and then for the child to then develop into an individual, have a bit of autonomy and sort of progress through their maturation. That's scenario one. That's the the goal, of course. Scenario two, if the parent themselves didn't reach a level of individuation and autonomy, then that's going to spell some trouble for the child. So, throughout this book and in this episode, we're referring to the mother, 
but this doesn't necessarily need to be the female or the mother. It could also be the father or alternatively, it doesn't need to be the biological parent whatsoever. It can be the primary carer of the child. So this second scenario, Astro, um, where the parents didn't reach individuation and autonomy, they start treating their child as their own possession. And what they're finding in the child is exactly what they didn't get from their own mother. And this is someone at their own disposal who could be used as an echo and who could be controlled. If the mother hasn't developed that level of individuation autonomy, they're really wanting that child to be completely centered on them. As you said, that's what they missed from their own mother. So they're, they're creating this child that is someone who's never going to desert them and someone who is going to give them their full attention and admiration at all times. So as a human being grows up under these circumstances, they're constantly going to be looking for what their parents could not give them at the appropriate time. And the search, of course, can never fully succeed since it relates to a situation that's all the way back in the past, namely at the time straight after birth or even early childhood. And this is where the child growing up was just to you know, substitute gratification for the parent. A newborn baby and even a small child, as humans, we're completely dependent on our parents and we know that their love and their caring is absolutely essential to our existence. So, as babies, we're really doing all that we can do to avoid losing them. If we lose our parents, we're totally cooked. Uh, we can't fend for ourselves. So, we need to keep our parents and what we often find is that that means sacrificing our own emotions or feelings and instead doing things to please the parents to keep them around. Absolutely. So at the point, this point, right, we've got a parent or a mother who is really completely reliant on the child behaving in a particular way um, to make the mother feel secure. And if you're sitting there as a child, right, you're probably not consciously thinking this, you want to get loved. And in this relationship with the parent, you have to behave in a way that suits the needs of the parents in order to get that love. So what the child is doing is growing up is playing a role in order to get love. But on the other hand, from the parent's point of view, it's really exploiting the child to fulfill their own needs in life. And this gives them a measure of existential security. So the problem here is that the child is playing a role. So they're not actually authentically feeling their feelings or their emotions. They're not actually then able to develop that sense of maturity. So because the parent didn't get to develop their own maturity. Now, the child themselves isn't able to develop their own maturity because they're trying to plug the gaps for the parent. So, it's sort of like this perpetual cycle where if the parent isn't a fully matured adult, the child is going to get stuck in childhood as well. That's it. As a kid, you've got two options. One, you lose the love from the parent, but you keep the feelings and you mature into someone else that's independent, but you're probably not going to do that as a as a child or a baby, you're fully dependent on the parent at this stage. You can't, as a toddler, you can't just run off and uh, go rent a house in the next suburb um, next to you. You can't be doing that. So the only option really is to ditch the feelings and you really become numb to emotions in order to get the love. You're really playing whatever role you need that the parent needs, but you're obviously not reaching this maturity and autonomy. I think some cases, it's really deep beneath the surface in the relationships with the parents Sometimes it's not deep beneath the surface. I think about a few footy games growing up when um, parents just get way too involved, don't they, mate? They, uh, <laughs> uh, I remember one time the dad just knocking out another dad on the sidelines because really? the two kids were um, they were playing against each other and one dad yelled out to the other kid or something like that. But in any case, that's just getting too worked up. 
it's like they're not playing the footy game. They're spectators, but it's very clear in this indication they're playing through the kid and the kid is a tool for the parent to probably feel good. Yeah, I remember as um, as a as a kid playing footy, we had a very dominant team. We had won all six premierships. Three blokes went on to play AFL and uh, there was this one game we went down to Frankston and the parents at Frankston, it was like the, it was the under-16s, it was our final year of juniors and you could tell how much the parents of Frankston wanted their kids to beat us, to finally beat us. They've been trying for five years and the parents were just so into it. We're playing on their home ground. One kid on our team broke his leg and the parents were like clapping like, good job, guys. Yeah, you took one of them Jesus. down. Like, <laughs> it's oh, not, mate. not good. It's, not, it's, it's quite awful. And I think uh, a lot of parents probably somewhere on this scale, right? It's probably not, not no parents are perfect. <laughs> but it's also common that a lot of their identity in life is just through the kids. And when they catch up with their friends for coffee or something, it's about um, the successes of the child or whatever. So the child, in that sense, if you're only getting love from the parents through your success, you're probably going to go hardcore um, success mode and you're going to be dependent on that. And when you lose that, um, it'll be nothing beneath the surface. Yeah. As you say, the problem, because the parent has never reach that level of maturity they're not really standing on their own two feet they're using their child as a crutch and stereotypically the parent is trying to relive their life through the child and as such the child is trying to play a role to fulfill the needs of the parent rather than the other way around and it's a never-ending cycle because then the child grows up and they never got the the secure love as a child so now they're going to get it they've been searching it their whole lives and now they've got the opportunity to get it through their own child and then the child has to play a role to that new parent who used to be a child. And is kind of still a child, yeah. And still kind <laughs> they're of They're an child. adult, but they never reached adulthood. They're still living the life of a child. And their only sense of self is now going to come through their own kid in this never-ending pattern. Let's put out a, a typical story that you've probably seen in a supermarket or down by the, the park all the time. You've got a young couple. There's a little boy about two years old who's running trying to keep up with them and whining or crying or complaining about something. We're so used to seeing this from an adult's point of view, but let's look at it from the child's point of view. You're a little kid who's you know knee high. You see these big adults who are meant to be looking after you. They stop at the ice cream bar. They grab two ice creams from the kiosk. They're licking them. They're enjoying that ice cream. And the kid just thinks, I wouldn't mind having an ice cream as well. And the mother replies, yeah, look, little Johnny. That's what they call them these days, yeah. I think. You can have a bit of mine, mate. Um, a whole one, it's too cold to you. You're probably not strong enough to, to lift one. But from the child's point of view, they don't want to buy it. He put his hand out for the whole bar. But his mother said, no, little Johnny, you can only just have a bit of mine. And he replies, no, no, no. And he cried and he, and he runs away. And as little Johnny, he looks at these two big, bouldering parents enviously and sadly. All Johnny wanted was to just hold the ice cream for himself. The mother didn't realize that. The mother thought he just wanted to lick. She held it out. As soon as he tried to put his hand out, she pulled the ice cream away. So he never, not only did he never get a lick, he also never got to hold that ice cream for himself. And the more the kid cried and protested and kicked up a fuss, the more the parents were kind of amused by it. They thought it was funny that, you know, that they, they every time they hold the ice cream out, then they pull it away. They thought it was funny, like teasing him a bit, playing with him a bit. The kid didn't find it that funny. No, not at all. And it, uh, I think I've probably laughed countless times when a kid cries. You said how cute they're being. <laughs> and it's quite amusement. So I think it's probably a common story that happens. But 
we get to look at it from little Johnny's perspective here. It's clear that the little boy is not frustrated just by the, the taste and the oral wishes. They just wanted an opportunity for a bite. And then he's constantly hurt and frustrated because he knows he's getting laughed at and being made fun of by these two big giants who obviously he can't compete with, he can't argue with or anything like that. So not only isn't he getting what he wants, he's getting laughed at for wanting it in the first place. It's two against one. It's two adults against one kid who can barely even talk properly yet. They're laughing. They're eating slowly. They're almost showing off to him saying, hey, as Borat would say, no, 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 you can never get this. You will never get this. And uh, they weren't being cold or unkind. They kind of weren't really doing it intentionally. But nevertheless, they definitely displayed a lack of empathy. Now, this sort of situation comes in all shapes and sizes, shades and varieties. But common to all of these situations is the strength that it gives the adult in these moments. So as the adult, rather than being empathic with the child and understanding and controlling their fears, what they're doing is using this moment to feel a lot of power like they're much needed in the world and they're they're filling up their own sense of self-importance. Yeah, back to what we said at the start, because they probably never got that individuation, that sense of autonomy, that sense of maturity, by wielding this power over somebody else and feeling in control, they're trying to fill some of those holes from their childhood. So it's absolutely urgent that people become aware to the degree to which this disrespect of children is persistently transmitted from generation to the next, perpetuating this destructive behavior. Yeah, because people say it's just because they're only children that we're probably overblowing it here. It's um, quite trivial. The kids, come on, the kids crying it's pretty cute but what's going to happen in 20 years time bad luck to johnny's son he's not getting a nice johnny's son's not getting (laughs) an ice cream either and he's going to get laughed at and johnny's going to find his sense of power and and importance Mm. through the next child in in the next iteration johnny will probably load up we'll have 10 or 12 ice creams at once because he's finally got that power and the control that he he craved for as a kid so this situation comes in all shapes and sizes but what the effect is on the kid that they are they are really a tool for the parents, right? So they have to live in a certain way in order to secure love from the parents. And a lot of the time, it manifests in different sorts of ways. One way it can manifest is end up in being very grandiose and actually excelling in certain fields because it's their way of securing the love and the admiration from the parents. And they can't live without this. I guess that's where the, the title sort of comes in, the drama of the gifted child. If the, the parent thinks their kid's gifted, they're smashing their maths tests, they're winning all the all the school sports, they're doing swimming lessons, they're doing tennis lessons, they're doing Spanish lessons, they're doing violin lessons, they're killing it in every area and because they're dominating, that's when they get the, the love, attention, the admiration of their parents. Mm. The drama then comes is that then they rely on this. They can't live without that attention. They crave or they desperately need the admiration and the, and the support of others. Yeah, unfortunately, someday in age, the area they're excelling in, they might be the AFL star the footy star, the soccer player, they're going to hit 40 and then all of a sudden, um, what's left after that? Yeah, they do an ACL, they they tear a calf. At at some point, their career is going to end. This seems pretty personal there, Astro. (laughs) (laughs) No, shoulders for me. Shoulders for you, mate. That might be the obvious one, but for others, it might be getting older, right? They're the beautiful child growing up. They're smoking hot and then they hit 45 and their wrinkles start appearing (laughs) and then they probably get get a facelift. It might be... Might come in all sorts of ways, these gifts, but when that gets removed, there's this deep depression that might be lurking underneath. Yeah, the grandiose person is never really free. 
They're excessively dependent on the admiration of others and also their self-respect is dependent on, on qualities that are sometimes fleeting that it, at some point they're going to disappear from them. So to go back through this full loop again, because their parents never fully matured, they're relying on their kids as sort of their sense of success and satisfaction. So their kid overachieves and becomes a superstar in some area, but later in life, once those skills or those looks or those abilities, whatever it is, disappears from them, suddenly there's a gaping hole that they're looking to fill. Without these superior qualities, they believe that they might be completely worthless. And without the achievements, they can never be loved and in the adult, the illusion continues that it's through grandiosity that you can secure love. The development of the child begins at birth. So let's say if a woman is to give her child what he's going to need throughout his life, it is very important that she's not separated from the newborn. So the hormones that foster and nourish her motherly instinct, are, they're really released immediately after birth. So these first moments of a child's life, the bonding through skin and eye contact between the mother and baby, stimulates in both of them this feeling that they belong together. Now imagine being a baby, right? You've you spent nine months or something. Yeah. You spent a bit of time as a sperm, which is weird. You develop into a <laughs> into a baby nine months in the mother. Imagine just popping out in existence for the first time ever. I mean, it'd be pretty bloody scary. You've been in the mother the whole time. If you're pulled away for too long at the very start and you're really a blank slate as a human being in this world. It'll be too chaotic. So these first moments are super critical for the development of the child. So in those initial moments and I guess even those initial weeks and months, uh, physical availability is vital to the development of the child. And as the child ages, emotional availability becomes vital as well. Often unconsciously, the mother isn't totally emotionally available. And remember, we're saying mother is in the primary caregiver. And that primary caregiver, that mother, they're trying to really fill their own emotional needs through the child rather than being fully emotionally present for the child and their needs. So he develops into something that the mother needs, but it prevents him, the, the cost of all this, in living his own life. So above all is the framework that the child can experience their own emotions so let's say as a kid, um, you've got these emotions, you come home, you're really just pissed off, you're envious or you're jealous or angry and you just crack the shits, right? You've come last out of 20 races in the 100-meter sprint at school um, and if you're able to come home and experience those emotions in front of the parents and still feel loved that you're lost and you failed in something and you've got all these emotions, then you can develop. But a lot of kids, they might come home and they'll hide a lot of these emotions that end up numb. Yeah, the problem is if the, if the kid thinks they're not going to get the full love and support of the parents, that's when they're going to hide it. That's when they're going to say, oh, yeah, I did all right at, at running today. I was sort of mid-pack or they might say, oh, I dominated, I won, I, I'm a superstar. Whatever they think the parent needs to hear is what they're going to spin up the story of. Uh, Instead, if the child actually feels safe and feels like they can actually experience some of these emotions, they might actually tell them the truth. They might say it feels shit. Either they might come to their own conclusion and say, actually, it doesn't really matter to me that I came last in the running or they might say, it really matters to me. I want to go do some training. Can you help me out? Whatever it is, they feel safe and secure to actually share their truest feelings and emotions and that's really the only way to, to mature and develop. Now, when they hit the adulthood and 
they didn't have the right environment for the development as a kid, there's really only one way to fix the problem. Otherwise, it's going to be perpetual through the generations. And uh, this is through therapy. And this is what Alice Miller does as a profession. This is what the whole book is essentially about. I think there's a lot of blogs out there. This is like the best psychologist book of all time sort of stuff. But she's got a pretty interesting story of a, of a mother, for example, who, who came to her with her own issues. So this mother who had come to see her, the mother of four children, she was about 35 at the time. At the start of their interactions, the the mother said, oh, I don't have too many memories from childhood. I remember a pretty decent relationship with my mother. That's what Alice says it generally starts off like. They, they paint the picture as being happy or they don't remember a whole lot, but on the, on the whole, it was quite positive. And she actually described her own mother as being quite affectionate, a warm-hearted woman who spoke openly about her troubles. But then Barbara, who was, who was seeing Alice, she reported that her mother had always been proud of her, but now her mother had become old. She was actually getting pretty crook herself, and Barbara was getting pretty concerned about her health. So through sessions and sessions of therapy, the picture of her mother as a child, it started to change. So above all, all these started memories started popping up of toilet training, uh, weird things like that, entered consciousness. And all of a sudden, remembering that, the mother was demanding, cold, manipulative, petty, obsessive, easily offended and hard to please. And many other memories like this started popping up and all of a sudden, a different memory of the mother um, started to appear in her consciousness. So Barbara started to connect some of these memories now. And this was actually painting a bit of a... A, a more accurate picture and revealing some of the real reasons for a long suppressed anger. And she was actually starting to discover what her mother was really like, not what her illusions and her memories were trying to tell her. She realized that when her mother had felt insecure in relation to her, she had in fact often been cold or treated her badly. The mother's anxious concerns for the child had served to ward off against aggression and envy since the mother had often been humiliated as a child, she needed to feel valued by her daughter. So it's pretty powerful stuff for Barbara here and she's experiencing therapy for the first time, the fear and rage that she had to suppress when she was only 10 years old. she came home from school on her mother's birthday, right? This is what happened, which is quite <laughs> awful. And uh, her mother was lying on the floor with closed eyes, so memories like this. And the child coming home, you see your mum there, right? you ball your eyes out thinking that your mother's dead. But then what the mother did, she popped up and opened her eyes and, um, and the daughter was obviously delighted. And the mother says, hey, you gave me the most precious birthday gift. Now I know you love me, that somebody loves me. It's, pretty, it's a pretty dark story, isn't it? Coming home as a 10-year-old from school, seeing your mother lying dead on the ground Actually, that was just the mother's way of needing to feel loved and secure by the kid. And at the time, Barbara was obviously pretty pissed off um, and pretty upset by this whole experience, but she had to hide it because the mother really needed Barbara to play a certain role. Barbara had to bury her emotions deep down inside. It wasn't until she relived it through therapy you know, decades later that mm. she could actually remember what happened. She could actually start to experience some of those emotions that she needed to feel in order to mature properly. So for Barbara and maybe some people listening right now, the, the emotion doesn't necessarily have to be just getting pissed off at your parents for, for doing what they did when you were an innocent child. A lot of the time it can be more about compassion because your parents, they didn't get the love that they really needed uh, as, as a child and it's not necessarily their fault. They've just been in this perpetual cycle and they're just another human being with weakness, insecurity and oversensitivity and at one stage, they were a kid who had to do everything to secure the love of their parents. 
So Barbara had gone, sort of relived and, and re-experienced the things that she needed to experience and could actually start to pull herself out of the world of illusions and false memories and plant herself back into the world of, of reality, having a true uh, emotional understanding of all these things that she went through. So through therapy, we can all sort of experience some of these things for ourselves. It makes it possible to return to our own world of feelings, but also now to progress to the adult level. We're not getting trapped in childhood or in adolescence. We're actually uh, able to understand what's happened and now start to move forward. We're not going to change the past, but by truly understanding it, we can start to change the present and the future. Through therapy, you can relive the emotions and the feelings that were numb throughout your life as a child and you can live them right now. You can grow and mature well beyond what your parents and their grandparents did. Then you can give your children what they need, the mirroring, the available mother who's at their child's disposal and not the other way around, that the child is at the mother's disposal. So in summary, it's recognizing that parents are sometimes just insecure children themselves and they're children who have finally found a weaker creature in comparison to them that they can now feel strong and that's with their own children. The patient going through therapy has to discover some of these early memories deep within themselves. They must become consciously aware of their parents' unconscious manipulations and contempt so that they can eventually free themselves from them. So the aim of therapy, it's not to correct the past, but it's to enable the patient to both confront their own history, to grieve over it, and then to move forward into maturation. Mm -hmm.